Welcome to another episode of the Metaverse Podcast with your host, Tom Traplin. This is session number 16. everybody on today's episode we have ben Rowe and adam friedman now these guys are the owners of red caps corner in philadelphia now they've got uh, their story is one of perseverance and dedication because they started off small with a ridiculously tiny budget but they've managed to grow into a very successful business that has not one but two locations so these guys definitely know what they're doing so i'm going to introduce you right now to ben Rowe and adam friedman all right um my name is Ben Rowe. Um, I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do with my life for many years, and I, I uh, was sick of driving to the suburbs to play Magic, so I decided to open a, open a game store. And uh, here's my partner, Adam. Hey, I'm Adam Friedman. Um, I was one of Ben's friends that played Magic with him every week and would go with him out to the suburbs to play Magic. And I, I uh, spent most of my uh, younger years working at a comic book store that had a big gaming area that then when their lease was up and their rent got raised, they got rid of all the gaming and just became a comic book store. And that was the last time Philadelphia had a like a dedicated gaming space in it. And that was in like the early 2000s. Um, so, so, yeah. Just there, there was a vacuum. We 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 saw that needed filling, and we filled it. <laughs> Basically, is what it came down to. All right, what's your business called? Red Caps Corner, and we were based in West Philadelphia. We have two locations: one at Thirty Sixth and Lancaster, and one at Forty Eighth and Baltimore. Not bad. Most stores don't have even one successful location. Having two is pretty good. Yeah. It, well, the the second location is new. We we opened it in August of last year, and and so it's still kind of getting up off the ground, but so far so good. Okay, so how long have you been open? Six, a little over six years yeah, now. Yeah, about six years. We opened in February 2009. Yep. Pretty solid. And uh, what do you sell? What do you start out with? Or what did you start out with? Uh, mostly magic and uh, random assortment of board games and a few, and like some Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, some other card games. We definitely, we opened on a shoestring budget and started with a very, very skeletal inventory. Uh, we, we, we carried the very bare bones basics of Games Workshop product. We had, um, you know, the top 50 games from Board Game Geek and a few of our other favorites. Um, we had the most recent few Yu-Gi-Oh sets, Pokemon sets, Magic sets, but it was, it was very bare bones to start out. Was that difficult? Yes. Yeah, very hard. <laughs> I do not recommend starting on a shoestring budget to anyone. Make sure you have enough money before you open your store. Okay. Now, what was the uh, – you said shoestring, but do you have a ballpark number? We opened our store with a $20,000 credit card limit. Very shoestring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it still worked out though, right? 
Yeah. yeah. Many, many years of, of grueling grinding, it worked out. Yeah. Yes. So what was the first year like then? Uh, I mean, the first year, surprisingly, was actually profitable. But we also, you know, it was there were there were more owners at that point and we had no employees. We all worked all like us owners worked all the hours um, and we weren't paying ourselves for the first year. So it, that that helped the business. Yeah. Have the, you have to understand we're 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 in the fifth largest city in the country and there were no game stores for whatever crazy reason. So uh, instant success was was almost a foregone conclusion. Um, in the first year we were open, we expanded twice. Um, starting, starting, I think our initial store was about 800 square feet. Pretty quickly, we jumped up to 1,200, and then up to about 2,000 square feet, or close to 2,000 square feet in the first year. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, we we were we were sharing a in like the same space as a as a video and comic book store, and as they kept failing and losing, needing to lower their rent, we just kept taking more and more of the space. Hmm. Um, we In that first year, we demolished and built the same dividing wall three times. <laughs> That's a different story. Yeah. yeah. How many people did you start out with originally? It was four. Yeah, there, there were four, four partners originally. I was actually not one of them. Yeah, we, well, hmm. <laughs> Adam's been here basically since the beginning. We, we started out with... Uh, me and three other partners, and within a few months, one of them decided he was in over his head, and Adam bought him out. So maybe a month, month and a half after we yeah. opened, Adam, Adam got involved. Hmm. How did you find four people who all wanted to do the same thing and were all on the same page? Well, I so at least for, I, the, I, for the beginning, I, I had I had the seeds of this idea in my head, and I had a friend at the time named uh, Kettner who I. I thought would be great as a as a business partner. He was a really energetic, really charismatic guy, and he was really, really into comic books. And our original plan was to do a game store comic book store hybrid. Um, we pretty quickly realized that wasn't going to be possible because Philadelphia, for all its its losses and, uh, and for all that it lacks, it it actually has quite a number of good comic book stores. Um, and one of them opened right in the area we were trying to open the store as we were beginning working on it. So uh, I had I'd approached Kettner about going into business with me, and he was pretty excited, but he was mostly excited about the comic book side of things. And I think that was why ultimately he he decided to to get bought out is he was disappointed that we weren't able to support comic books in addition mm-hmm. to games. But um, I, I had uh, asked him to go into business with me, and it turned out he had already been talking to another friend of ours, Bonsky, about doing a similar similar uh, project. And at the time, I, I knew Bonsky, but I didn't know him well, uh, and I knew that he was kind of a, a, a board game, uh, what's the word, virtuoso. I don't know. He, yeah, he, yeah, he knew he knew board games very very well. So I immediately said yes, and the three of us put in a lot of the legwork and worked out how much things were going to cost. Uh, we, you know, registered all of our paperwork and then realized that money was not going to be possible to, to just appear in our laps. We, we had been counting on getting some sort of a loan and this was right when the economy really started to tank in the United States. Um, so we put things on hold. Um, and a few months later, a friend of mine from college moved to Philadelphia. He'd been living in, in Seattle for the last year or two prior to that. 
And he's like, hey, I've got a $20,000 credit card limit, and I don't know what to do with it. You guys have any projects? <laughs> and it turned out we did. That's convenient. So that was the story of how we ended up having four partners. Okay, and gradually kind of they fell away? Yeah, so Bonsky had never intended on being in it for the long haul. He he wanted to see a game store open, but he he's very dedicated to his artwork, and he... Uh, he want, did not want to be doing a job full time at any point in the in the immediate future. So he he helped us start up with the intention of being bought out. Um, Kettner again realized his heart wasn't in it and sold his share to Adam and Carlos. Also, he he just had he had the money and he he wanted to put that money to good use, but he he had other aspirations as well. So slowly but surely, we we just bought them out one by one. Was the process smooth? Yeah, yeah, it was very smooth, and we're on good terms with, That's good. with all of them still. Yeah, a lot of partnerships end up uh, usually separating because they have to, not because they want to. Right. Yeah, it was, it, it, we were very lucky in that it was a number of really passionate and dedicated people who uh, just wanted to see the place succeed and didn't need to be part of it long term um, and realized that having fewer partners was ultimately going to be better for the health of the store. Okay. So what does your store look like right now? Can you describe it for me? Yeah, right now we have our the store, our, our main store, the, the older one, mm-hmm. is around, what, a little over 3,000 square yeah, feet? Yeah, about, about 3,000 square feet. Um, it is a retail area up front that is about a third of the space. Uh, and then the back two-thirds of the space is all gaming tables uh, with a small area upstairs that have, uh, for on the second floor, that has four private like RPG rooms that people can rent out that we use for like Pathfinder society and, and D and D encounters and things like that. And, and the, uh, so our, our play area on the first floor, we, we've got seating for about 90 people. It's fairly typical folding, folding card tables. We do have, um, tabletops that we can put down for wargaming on top of some of those that we had built. Um, we have a long, long counter filled with magic singles um, we have a ton of board games, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty good stock of miniatures. We carry the full line of infinity war machine hordes, uh, Warhammer 40 K all, all of that stuff. Um, our smaller store, the more recent one is first floor retail. It's about 1200, yeah, 1200 square feet t- total, including the basement. It's first floor retail with basement play space. And we've got, uh, card tables for about 30 people downstairs. Hmm. Um, a lot of the same products upstairs. The big, the big focus on our with our our second store is actually we're trying to do more family and and kid focused programming, and so we have a, a much bigger family games section at this store, and we have much much smaller miniatures games sections. We basically just carry the starter boxes for miniatures games at the small store. Okay, and they're both in Philadelphia. Yep, yep. both in West Philadelphia. Yeah, the, ma- the main store is on Drexel's campus and very close to Penn's campus, and the the newer store is is in a more residential neighborhood, a little further west. So you guys felt that Philadelphia was still ripe enough that the second store would still succeed. Yeah, we. I mean, when when we had first opened, we were at Forty First and Locust, uh, and so we were right on Penn's campus. And when we moved to Thirty Sixth and Lancaster, even that small difference of of like maybe eight blocks difference, we saw a large portion of our like family gamers, like the the parents that would come in with their kids for board game night, that just dried up because 
a lot of people in Philadelphia don't own cars and, and hmm. we just lost a ton of the family business because it was just a little too far for them to walk or take public transportation to get to the store. Um, so we, we wanted to open a second store and we found a location that was like in the heart of the residential area in West Philly. Interesting. So have you guys always been in Philadelphia? Like you personally? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've lived in Philly my whole life. I, yeah, I've so maybe this that. is a case of uh, knowing your surroundings. That's probably what's what's helping you out so much that you understand the city well enough. That yeah, I've, I've lived in every neighborhood in Philadelphia pretty much. I grew up in South Philadelphia. I've lived in the Northeast and, 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 uh, and West Philly. And yeah, it's... I, I've moved around a bunch. I, I lived in, in Kentucky when I was younger and in Delaware uh, when I was a, going to high school and in college. Uh, I moved to, to Philadelphia about nine years ago, and I've been living in West Philly the entire time. But, uh, but even, even still, it was long enough for me to get a really good sense of, of the differences between different West Philly neighborhoods and what sort of stores would work where. Mm-hmm. And it was important to us when we opened the store that we be as close to Penn and Drexel as possible because uh, college students notoriously do not travel for anything if they can avoid it. But the rest of the city is perfectly happy to come to West Philly. <laughs> so, okay. okay. Cool stuff. Especially Drexel. Being close to Drexel, I think, has been one of the, like, the biggest... When we moved to 36 and Lancaster mm-hmm. onto Drexel's, effectively Drexel's campus, that was, we saw a huge uptick in sales. Um, that was a big difference. So proximity to a college, a big win. To a college, specifically a very nerdy college like Drexel. Yeah, Drexel, Drexel is a tech and science school primarily, and it's it's yeah, that's a pretty good fit. Yep, yeah, rife with geeks. <laughs> okay, so uh, what is Red Caps Corner known for? Um, I mean, I feel like originally we were known for magic because that was like eighty-five percent of our sales the first year, yeah, or something absurd like that. I, and I, I still think we're known for magic. We we have a very very competitive magic scene here. Uh, two years running, one of our players has been the vintage world champion. Um, we we are hosting one of the thirty regional pro tour qualifiers later this month. We, you know, we we have a very very competitive and and robust magic community here. So I, I do, I do think that's probably to this day what we're most well known for. Yeah. Um, I mean, our, our week, like we have weekly legacy tournaments that on like on a weekday that we get, you know, 20 to 30 people on average for, um, and, uh, that's fantastic. On, yeah. On top of that, I think, um, we, we probably have a, a much, uh, we have an above average selection of, of board games. Uh, and that's something that we've been working very hard at over the last six years. we, we carry well more than the top 200 or so board game geek uh, titles, and we carry anything else that that uh, we know to be a good game or that we've heard good things about. We, we we've got hundreds and hundreds of board game titles at our store, so I think I think increasingly we're getting more well known for that. Um, and I guess probably tertiary uh, miniatures miniatures games. We yeah we. Um, have a decent War Machine community, a decent 40K community, a uh, decent Infinity community. I think we have like the only real Infinity community uh, that in the tri-state area. I mean, there's not really much of a presence that I've seen in New Jersey at all or New York. And I haven't like, I know Baltimore gets a lot of Infinity, uh, but I don't think there's anything closer than that where that other than us for Infinity. It's it's an 
newish game and that it's really nobody's really been playing it, even though it's been out for a few years. You think that's just because no one's supporting it? Um, I, th- I think it's because a lot of stores are reluctant to bring it in. It's a it's a Spanish game, so it's for a while it's it was very hard to stock because a lot of distributors just didn't carry it. Um, I had played it a little bit and really liked it, and uh, a lot of the guys that I play War Machine with also really liked it, and we started pushing for it, and we just couldn't get the models in stock. And then we worked really hard and found distributors that had it and harassed some distributors until they started carrying it. And once we were able to start carrying the models, we saw, you know, we saw sales take off for it and we saw the community start to grow. It's, it's a great game as miniatures games go because your, your force is going to be so small in that game that it, it's a great side game for people who are already fairly yeah. heavily invested in, in War Machine or in 40K. Um, you can uh, fit an Infinity Army in the extra space in some of your, like, battle phone trays because yeah. you only need, like, 10 figures. I want to say probably 50% of our of our 40K players and 50% of our War Machine players just have an Infinity Force on the side. Interesting. And I want to say that uh, in terms of our, our current projects that we're, we're working towards getting better known for, I think Netrunner and X-Wing and Attack Wing are, are all all kind of on the uh, on the agenda. We've we've been doing an attack wing league weekly at our at our new location. Um, we've been doing X wing weekly uh, casual night at our at our other store, and we're going to start doing more and more tournaments for both of those games. Um, this will be the second year. Second year. It's, it's the, it'll be the third year that we've run regionals for Netrunner, but the first year anybody could run regionals. Uh, regional the regionals the first year of regionals turned into. Uh, store championships and then we were we were lucky enough to get selected to be one of the 16 US regionals the first year they did that and then we've been reselected because there was so much positive feedback about our first time yeah I think so we, we had again. the second highest turnout in the country last year for yep. regionals we were, we were tied with Chicago for 87 players um, and that was only because we had four people sign up and then no show, so we didn't have the ninety-one people that we thought we were going to have. Okay, so how do uh, how does a store take a game that's not popular or non-existent and then build a community? Like, how did you manage before anyone played Netrunner? How did you get people to start playing we, and build it up? We play it ourselves. Like we we make sure that we invest in a game. We play the game. We show it to the regulars. We teach them the game. And then it just spreads usually like wildfire. As long as if we're excited about a game and and customers see that we're willing to spend our time, like our free time, not when we're working, but like we come in and hang out and play the game, people understand that we believe in it and then they're willing to take the risk, even if they know nothing about it. Yeah, it's it's amazing how infectious enthusiasm is. Hmm. And just being passionate and and showing that you you love a game is is enough to pique people's interests. Good stuff. And I, I think it's mostly because we're in a position where, like, people know that, you know, especially, I think for me especially, people know that I have no problems just not wanting to do anything with, having anything to do with a game that I don't enjoy. And I just won't, I won't even involve myself with a game I don't like. Like, I personally hate most Games Workshop games. So I have, want nothing to do with them. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we carry a lot of games that, that, uh, there is demand for that, you know, we don't personally understand maybe why there's 
There's as much demand for us, but we carry them just because that's what the people want. Uh, but we we are. I think we have a reputation as a, a store that really pushes games that we truly believe in. All right, so uh, let's go back six years, give or take. And okay. I want you to tell me a story about a failure or a setback that you encountered and that you overcame. Don't open your store on a credit card. Yeah. That is, <laughs> <laughs> that, I think that's the most important thing is, you know, make sure that you have you get get a line of credit or loans from a bank. Don't use a credit card for to pay for things unless you are already an established business that can pay off that credit if card. If possible, get your, your rich uncle to lend you some money. That's the best way. The best yeah. way is family members who have money that they don't know what to do with. Um, but no, I think beyond that, uh, we learned a lot of lessons early on about how to lay out your store in such a way as yeah. to be successful. We, we learned the hard way. Separate your gaming area and your retail space. Yeah, we learned the hard way mm-hmm. about blind spots and shoplifting and, and uh, allowing people to be gaming in the same area that there is merchandise for sale. That's, those are all horrible mistakes that we, yeah. we ended up having to expand and eventually relocate the store in order, in order to solve. And uh, for anyone trying to start a store, please don't make that mistake. You will regret it. What specifically happened? Um, well, we, we had a lot of issues with our sales were, were terrible early on and we couldn't figure out why. Uh, and then we, you know, it, it was really only because we, a couple, you know, like a couple of really helpful customers just pointed out how uncomfortable it was for them to shop in the store when other people are playing games because the gaming tables were just a little too close to the, to the retail area. So when, you know, one table was crowded with people, the, those people would spill out into the retail area and block other customers' ability to shop. And that just became, you know... Our, 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 our early layout for the store was retail down the left side of the store and tables down the right side of the store. And it was a reasonably narrow hallway <laughs> of a store. So, so when people were playing games at the tables on the right side, it was incredibly difficult to shop on the left side of the store. No, and that just kind of... Pressured I mean, people to avoid it, yeah, even I mean, without and, necessarily and, thinking about it. And hopefully, this seems like common sense to uh, other entrepreneurs out there. But unfortunately, it didn't. Not necessarily. I, I look when I look at other like pictures of the layouts of other game stores. I see this constantly, where they will have retail product along the wall, and within like five or six feet of that, there's a gaming table. And even in areas where it's like a large open space, and they don't have separate aisles for shopping they'll have like a back wall of you know of wargaming stuff and then four feet away will be the end of a table and so if somebody if people are playing on that table and somebody stands at the end of the table they're now blocking that entire retail section and it doesn't it it definitely isn't common like it isn't an obvious thing that's a problem until you notice that it's a problem but it's it's something you should really avoid you you want like at least eight feet uh, between where a table ends and where retail space begins. Just so if somebody's shopping retail and somebody's railbirding a game on a table, not necessarily playing it, but just watching a game, those two people aren't bumping into each other and back to back. Yeah, when you're when you're doing a store layout, it's it's easy to think about well, how much space 
people are going to need to pull the chair out comfortably and put and, and and sit comfortably between rows of tables it's a lot less obvious that people are going to be standing around watching those games more often than not yeah i guess that's something that uh new store owners might not consider right off the bat that you end up paying for if you're not paying attention definitely okay so you mentioned the uh, theft was this yeah. a common thing um at your store? It was early on. I think we had a we had a pretty poor layout early on, and there was you know the issue of a very bad blind spot right by a lot of Games Workshop stuff, and so a lot of Games Workshop stuff started to disappear. Yeah, we, we've actually for a store in a large metropolitan area, we 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 actually have an incredibly low shoplifting rate. I think, um, but we yeah early on we started noticing that a lot of Tyranids and Tau were going missing, and we started looking around at the customers who had been playing Tyranids and Tau and putting together who was responsible. And we did actually catch at least one of the major shoplifters um, and uh, had a talking with him and his father. But, uh, hmm. but yeah, we, we lost a lot of Games Workshop product that first year. <clears throat> so it's another lesson learned. Yeah, avoid blind spots. It was, it was a layout lesson, and yes. you know, it's once we understood, you know, what we need to be doing there, it, you know, it it became very simple, and our our uh, shop our shrinkage has dramatically dropped off. Okay, all right. So let's uh, flip the story a little bit. Can okay. you tell me about the biggest success you've had with your store? I don't know. I I, I feel like early on the biggest success to me personally was when we got to the point where we could pay ourselves and hire employees and feel like a real business. Uh, cause early on the first year it, it felt more like a, it was more like just volunteering your time, uh, because we weren't getting paid. We were doing this out of a love and a desire to have the store exist. Yeah. Uh, we were all working full time at red caps and part time elsewhere <laughs> just to support ourselves. Um, um yeah, now we have six employees and, you know, it's, you know, we, we actually get paid. It's great. We get to, you know, we get to run a real business now. Um, that to me was, you know, I think the, the it, it's not a huge success. It's, it's just the thing that hit home and the most for me. It's um, a good answer. Yeah, being able to stop worrying about about whether or not <laughs> the the store was going to do well enough to even survive, let alone to let us survive, uh, was definitely definitely a big deal. I guess also when we when we realized that we we could afford a bigger a bigger space. I mean, we moved to our our current three thousand square foot space about three and a half years ago, and and I think that was really the beginning of yeah. of things really feeling right for us as a, as a store. I think that that's definitely a big success. And I, I think a lot of store owners are not, they're, they're too reluctant to accept the limitations of their own space. I've seen so many stores where they squeeze too much merchandise into mm-hmm. a small area, try to squeeze too many tables into a small area, just accept the fact that their events always sell out. Uh, and, and really, if you're selling out all of your events and you're squeezing stuff onto shelves where there's just no room for anything else, 
you need to be in a bigger space. And if you can't afford to be in a bigger space, you have to start looking at why you can't afford that and what you're doing wrong. And for, for us to actually be able to afford to move to a space that could fit us comfortably was uh, a, a big success in my eyes. And actually, we're, we're at that point again. We, we're in the process of negotiating a, another possible move. For a larger space? Yep. Yeah, we're looking oh. at possibly moving to a 4,500-square-foot space. That, that's that's huge. Yep. Yep, it's going to be great. We're going to have over 100 card gaming seats uh, on their own separate floor and uh, dedicated wargaming tables for about 32 people in the back of the first floor with a much, much larger retail area than we currently have. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal there is that right now we've we've hit the point where while we don't sell out every event, our calendar of our schedule of events has become so cramped that we can't we can't run enough events to meet the demand for events themselves wow. because the space we can't have a war machine tournament the same Saturday that we're, we're on a magic tournament because while neither of them takes up the entire space, both of them take up enough space that they can't both be there at the same time. Yeah. Um, so we, we moving to a space that allows us to have dedicated wargaming tables and dedicated card tables will let us, you know, expand our event calendar drastically. And, and at, the, at, at its heart, Red Catch Corner is more of an event space and less of a retail store. We, we, everything is focused around our events here. Yeah. Our, our events drive our sales, uh, you know, 80%, 75%. We, we, we would not exist in the way that we do without, without our, our gaming space. And I know that's that's an opinion that not all stores have. A lot of stores feel like they can get along fine with without gaming space, but I just I couldn't imagine it. Well, I think uh, I agree with you to start off with, but I think a good way to put it would be a thought experiment would be imagine if every single game store didn't have gaming space. There's just no gaming space and just retail. Would yeah. any of the games actually sell? Because there'd be no place to play, right? Right, right. So the places that are solely retail are kind of functioning the same way that online only is and that they're working off of right, the right. places that do provide the community space for them to play. Yeah. And we've, and we've seen that there's, you know, there are, there are people that will come in and be like, Oh, I can get this cheaper online mm-hmm. or blah, 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 blah. And you know, if, if that's what they feel, we never have like, you know, I don't have any ill will towards them. They can get it cheaper online. We, I'm not worried about everybody wanting to buy stuff from us. We just want to provide a space where people can play games that they love and enjoy the kind of like and enjoy what we enjoy. And as a secondary effect of that, people want to support us and they buy things from our store. And you know, it that helps. And being able to offer store credit as prize support for bigger events also drives sales. So that's you know, that's a that's an extra plus. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. That's kind of that confirms what I've always felt that the gaming space is vital. Yeah, and I think it, I think it makes a better business overall. And, and I think it helps everybody. And a really important thing is making like like I always hear people saying, you know, you, the like the number one thing is the space has to be like clean and well lit. And while that is incredibly important, I think the most important thing is the space has to be comfortable. You have to have enough room. If you if you have to choose between having room for fifty people and you're cramped. Or 32 people and you're not cramped, you go 32 people every time. Like making sure that when people show up to your events, even if they do, even if you have a lower cap and you can't squeeze as many people in, but those people have room to, in between rounds, move around and it doesn't get really hot in there and they're not, they don't feel like they don't have any personal space, you're gonna have happier customers 
Yeah, better overall experience. Yeah. I've worked in retail my whole life, and uh, most of it was not at, at a game store. Certainly most of it was not event events-driven retail. But the number one thing that your employer tells you when you're working in retail 100% of the time is getting customers through the door is, is the biggest obstacle to any retail store. Once you can get customers in that door, it, it doesn't matter if they all buy something. Enough of them will buy things to keep you afloat. You just need the people. Uh, and that, I mean, that's, that's what events does for, for, that's what events do for our store. Having those events is guaranteed people through the door and that just naturally becomes sales without having to really be salesmanly or drive, drive sales down people's throats. And we're actually quite proud of the fact that we, we are not a store of salesmen. We're a store of gamers that is happy to sell you things if you're, if you're looking for them. That's uh, that's perfect. That actually leads into my next question. Other than events, do you have another strategy that uh, reaches that reaches and brings in new customers for your store? Yeah, so we do, uh, and this is something that I think most of the business world could really stand to to benefit from, and that is we cooperate with other stores in the area that are doing similar things, rather than try to compete with them. So. We are very close friends with the owners of Top Deck Games in Collingswood, New Jersey, and the uh, and the owners of um, Alternate Universes that actually have three locations, two of them in the suburbs outside Philadelphia, Holmes and Bluebell, and one of them in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and we're also on good terms with the owners of uh, Seventh Dimension Games and, and other stores in the area. We talk to those guys. We, we coordinate events with those guys. We run cross-promotional series of events. We, we actually run, uh, we're, we're part of an, uh, a group called the Philly Legacy Series that runs rotating monthly legacy tournaments at, at each of the three different stores involved, and they all feed into the same uh, championship event. Th- those sorts of symbiotic and, and cooperative uh, business strategies only benefit everyone. Yep. Uh, and I think too many stores... Uh, we just refuse to see that. And yeah, just they, refuse they look to at other stores as competition. And I can see in cities where there's multiple game stores in the same large city and they're relatively close to each other, I can see that there could be competition there. But for us, like, Top Deck Games is only 20 minutes away. Not even. I mean, yeah. if there's no traffic, it's 10 minutes away. Yeah. It's and, right over the bridge into New Jersey. And and uh, Holmes and Bluebell for alternate universes are both, you know, 20 to 40 minute drives away. Like, they're all very close to us. Um, and they're not competition. They're, they're our friends. And we, you know, if we don't have something and I know that top decks or AU has it, I point them to top deck or AU and they do the same. And it's, you know, we, we, they have the same mindset that we do, which is it's about growing a community of gamers and it doesn't matter which store they're going to to buy stuff. As long as, you know, people are playing games, that's the important thing. Yeah, we, we, we keep we keep the gamer the gaming communities happy and and honestly running things like the Philly Legacy series is just it's just such an incredible win for everybody because it means that legacy players have lots of avenues to to play magic in the area um, and uh, alternate universes legacy players get a chance to come and see our store top decks uh, players get a chance to come see our store our customers get a chance to go see their stores. Um, it, it's just like such a beautiful symbiotic relationship, and uh, I don't—I don't know. It blows my mind that other other businesses don't see it that way. Did you seek out to build this relationship right off the bat? 
Yeah, we I, we well, used to be customers at Alternate Universes. Yeah, Alternate Universes was the store we would drive to to play Magic uh, before mm-hmm. Red Caps existed. And uh, we've known the owner of Top Deck Games since before he even opened his store because he's friends with the owners of Alternate Universes and has been a, a Magic vendor for forever. Yeah. Um, and when, you know, it's like we've all just known each other. When I decided I wanted to open a store, the first thing I did was go visit Mike Coyle at Alternate Universes and say, Mike, I'm thinking about opening a game store in Philadelphia. Is that going to hurt your business in any way? Because I won't do it if it will. And I had his blessing. And he he acted as a, almost a mentor figure to us in opening things up. We, we sat down with him and we, we talked about what distributors he uses. We talked about what what product lines do well for him and what don't. And ultimately, our store is very different from his store. And Top Deck is very different from both those stores. And Seventh Dimension is very different from all three of those stores. But but we we managed to find our own niches and, and work together. I, I mean, Seventh Dimension, I think, is actually... And they're in... Uh, what's the name of that town? They're, they're just north of Philly. Um, but they have probably one of the biggest Legend of the Five Rings communities in the world. Uh, I mean, they're in, they're in the top five, certainly. And we hardly do anything with Legend of the Five Rings because they're doing so well with it already. There's no reason for us to, to tap into that. That's, that's their thing. By contrast, we do quite a bit better with Magic than they do um, and, and so forth. We all have our own, own niches. And it's great, too, because we can, if we try out a product line and it doesn't do great for us, we talk to the other stores and say, hey, is this product doing well for you? We'll sell you our stock, our leftover stock at wholesale. Recently, we bought out Top Deck's uh, Attack Wing stock because Attack Wing's not doing anything for them, and it's doing great for us. Hmm. Interesting. Seems like a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you get a lot of uh, fallback potential if you actually do have that relationship with stores in your area. Right. Whereas, whereas if you treat them like competition, you know, you don't have the resources that you can get from talking with them. The other thing is when we meet to plan stuff for Philly Legacy Series, we also sit down and we discuss distributors and like we keep up to date on like if some, you know, it, it's just nice to be able to talk to other owners and, you know, get an even better understanding of what's happening in like in just in, in gaming and on, like in the general sense like knowing what distributors have changed policies or what distributors are now carrying something that we might not have heard about. Like we find out that Southern hobby is now carrying something that we've been trying to get forever. Well, now we can, now we know where to get it. it you know, things like that. Yeah. It kind of functions as a mastermind. Yeah. I like it. All right. Let's go into something a little technical, I guess. Sure. How do you manage your inventory uh, specifically with magic? Like do you have a, uh binders and stacks of binders and a display case so, what do you do so at uh at our main store we don't do a lot of magic singles at our at our new store uh we focus mostly on pokemon cards there because uh, we're going for younger kids uh, but, our, but our main store we have a what is it eight drawer more than that nine drawer ten drawer cabinet that's it's taller than a person uh and it is two five thousand like the five row five thousand count boxes wide and each so each drawer has two of the five thousand count boxes in it, uh, and those are just fully alphabetized with the cheaper singles. Um, we, when we started out, we were doing binders, and we were doing binders by set, mm-hmm. and keeping all of the bulk commons and uncommons and rares in, in those binders. And what we found was, 
it was a nightmare for customers. It was a nightmare to keep it organized. Um, Restocking it was the biggest problem, but also just customers wanting to look for cards was also a nightmare. Yeah, having to just like take these huge hulking binders out and flop them down on the counter and and let let customers peruse them at the counter on top of all of your expensive magic singles where where you're actually making quite a lot of money selling them. It it just, it, 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 struck us that there had to be a better system. So eventually we, we had a, a friend of ours who's a carpenter um, build us just a huge system of drawers and we just keep everything in alphabetical order in those drawers unless it is worthy of being in the case. Basically anything that costs $4 or more we keep in, in our, in our uh, countertop cases. And so we have everything displayed in like the Ultra Pro hard plastic um, I think they're the 50 count, 25, 25 count, uh, like two jewel, the jewel cases. Yeah. The jewel cases. Mm-hmm. So we just put multiple copies of the same cards in those, um, in and, perfect fit sleeves yeah. with prices on the sleeve and then put those in the, in the display cases. And we've got about 20 feet of display case for, for the expensive cards. And then we've got a cabinet for all of the, for all of the cheaper commons and uncommons and bulk rares. And if, if we if we make this move to the um, to the bigger location, we're gonna we're gonna get another one of those cabinets built, another another big system of drawers, because it's gotten to the point where we are stretching the limits of what that can hold. Yeah, that's uh, the trouble with magic inventory; it always seems to grow. <laughs> yeah, it, and then you always have to reorganize. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, that's actually a very interesting solution. Yeah, and, and so when a customer wants a lot like a larger list of cards, we just have them bring us. Or like a written list of what cards they're looking for if it's a longer list. And then one of the employees just goes over and just pulls them all out of the cabinet and gives them their stack of cards that they want. It's not without its problems, mind right. you. It, it, mm-hmm. our, the old system is preferable for more casual players who aren't sure what they're looking for and they just want to browse through things. And, and I, I, do, I do miss the browsability of, of our less expensive singles. But for... For competitive players, and like I said, we have a very competitive magic scene. For the competitive players who know exactly what they want, it, it takes 10 seconds for our employees to pull all of those cards out of the drawers. Whereas with the binders, it would have been five minutes more, yeah. Yeah. you know, half an hour of digging through binders, maybe sometimes. Yeah. So that's another function of understanding your community. Yeah. yeah. Which one works best? Yeah, and we still constantly will get, you know, a newer customer that's used to binders come in and get really confused and sometimes upset that they can't browse stuff. And then, you know, we have to explain to them why it works. And usually what happens is, you know, I go, well, hey, what five cards are you looking for? And when they list them off, I then immediately pull them all out and like, and now we're done. See how quick that was? And then they understand what the system is. There's definitely people that are used to binders there's some reluctance to, to our system, but when they see how efficient it is, it, we usually yeah, and we, we we are able to make up a little bit of the uh, of the browsability by what, before stuff gets alphabetized into the into the drawers because inevitably there's going to be a shoe a shoebox sized box full of uh, full of cards that haven't gotten sorted in yet. So when that's the case, um, if someone really just wants to browse things, we'll we'll break that out and they can take a look at it. Okay. So I'm assuming you then uh, buy cards as well, right? Yeah. Yep. Do you have a Do you have a program for that, or is it just your community just naturally does it? They just want to sell you. Yeah, I mean, we we I mean, we have a system that that we use for it, but but yeah, by and large, that is a 
it's, a self-running program. People just want to trade in their cards for other right. cards. I mean, people want to buy cards and then we'll just constantly ask, hey, can I sell you these cards to trade them in for, for stuff? I mean, it, it just kind of comes naturally. Okay. And then uh, it dovetails into how do you determine the prices on your cards? Uh, we use um, MTG Goldfish. MTG Goldfish. I was spacing on the name. Which is a it's it's a pretty great system. It 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 pulls all of its data from a variety of online stores and from eBay and sort of averages it all. Uh, and it it has separate prices for the online versions of cards and for the physical versions of cards, as well as separate prices, obviously for foil versus non foil and for different editions. But it it shows you a a bar graph of price or not a bar graph a line graph of prices so you can actually track whether or not a card has been going up in price or going down in price. Yeah. We, we used to use TCG Player and then TCG Player we kept hitting a couple snags with. It has too many statistical aberrants. Like it, right. it just like doesn't have a good filter for figuring out. There's Because if one person mislists a card and accidentally puts you know an extra zero on the price of a card. Mm-hmm. Or misses a decimal. Or misses a decimal <laughs> point. Like you just end up with you end up with very strangely priced cards sometimes, and MTG Goldfish gets around that. Yeah, so. I don't know what they do, but they have some sort of filter that that uh, filters out aberrants like that. If if ninety five percent of the cards are twenty dollars and one of them is two hundred, they're gonna it just ignores the two hundred dollar card. And yeah, maybe it works on a bell curve. Yeah, so uh, that, that's that's usually the the best indicator of prices, and we typically just go with the median median price on that as as what we sell for um, and depending on whether or not people want cash or store credit for their for their cards and depending on whether or not those cards are in good shape and depending on whether or not those cards are cards that will turn around very quickly or sit in our inventory for a long time we've got kind of a formula for how much to offer them yeah and and our prices you know sometimes change for those like for cards that you know are metagame for legacy cards you know if if there's cards in legacy that Say they're worth a certain amount, but we never like those decks never get played here in this area. <clears throat> we don't we don't charge as much for those cards. We tend to sell them a little cheaper. We also buy them for less because we we have an understanding of what gets played in our in our meta games. We see you know thirty players every week for Legacy. They're usually the same players, so we you know we get an idea of what decks get played. If it's a if it's a card in Miracles, then we know we can sell it because you know half of the decks every week are Miracles decks. Hmm. That's a that's a good point. It's a, and again another function of knowing your community, knowing yeah. what like what cards they want. Right. Yeah. No. You really and adjusting to, to that. that. Yeah. Keep on top. There. I mean, there are definitely cards that um, that we would see sit in our case forever despite online them spiking nobody here is interested in them. and there were other cards that we could that we'd have to sell for more than what they're selling for online because we couldn't keep them in stock otherwise hmm. yeah i mean a great example is the the emercool promo the the pre-release promo from from a few years back emercools are that's an expensive card but philadelphia we, we ran so many pre-release events and there were other stores in the area running so many pre-release events philadelphia was just flooded with those foil promo emercools and we could not sell them. Yeah, we even for like five or six dollars less than what they were going for online. Yeah, so we, I mean, we we had picked up a number of them shortly after the pre-release, and we ended up liquidating them for much, much more cheaply than the internet would lead you to believe it was yeah. worth. Why didn't you sell them on the internet? We did. We we, we did eventually. We, uh, 
but before we like we were in order to try and move, we had so many of them. Like we had so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, Rise of the Eldrazi was not a uh, was. I think that was one of the pre-releases where they gave us because our previous pre-release was so well attended. They gave us a, a when we hit one of the thresholds, and they gave us a bump for new expected players, mm-hmm. and we actually then had a lower turnout for that pre-release than the previous one. And so we got stuck with a ton of promo cards, and we were giving away those those uh, Emeralds um, for like we ran a sealed league for years that. That was just one of the prizes for playing in the sealed league. You could get those promo emeralds, and eventually, like a year or two later, after we had given away all these promo emeralds, everybody had them. And then they once they started to go up in price, everybody started selling them to us. So all of a sudden, we had bought back all of these extra promos <laughs> that we had give, were giving away. Um, it's kind of funny how that works. Yeah, and and then they were all of a sudden like thirty five dollars each. Um, but nobody wanted them because everybody that sold us their Emrakul promos still had five or six Emrakul promos. Yeah. That's kind of an odd, uh, odd circumstance. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've seen that happen with like some promo cards where we'll get like the, the path to exile. That oh was yeah. The, the gateway, the gateway promo. Uh-huh. Um, we, those are like five or $6 a piece. And we had something like 300 of them that we gave away just for playing in random events. Um, and then like a year and a half, two years later, everybody in the Philadelphia area just has 15 or 20 of those and wants to unload them. And we can't really buy them for what we'd normally buy a card that's worth that much for, because there's just too many, like the market's flooded. Nobody wants to buy those cards. Maybe maybe this would have been a good answer for the, uh, the, the story about, what we've done wrong in the past and what we would do differently in the future. We, uh, we don't buy back promos that we have flooded the market with for, uh, for very much money, if at all anymore. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what tools do you use during the day that, uh, you wouldn't be able to operate your business without? And I'm thinking things like, uh, Twitter, Facebook, your, like if you have a specialized point of sale, something like that. Yeah. I mean, we, we have QuickBooks point of sale, which, you know, if it wasn't such a pain to switch to a different point yeah. of sale, we can't, can't live with it. Can't live without it. Yeah, it's it is a buggy, terrible program. Um, especially, I can't stress this enough. If if there's other store owners that have QuickBooks point of sale and are considering opening a second store, you need to switch to a different point of sale before you open a second store. Yeah, the, <laughs> I feel like we're answering a different question here. QuickBooks no, no, that's tools that we have to use, but we hate it. <laughs> tools to avoid is also a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> QuickBooks Point of Sale is perfectly fine for one location, but it does not work uh, with a second location. We, we, we have the multi-store edition that theoretically allows you to transmit your inventory data from one store to the other, and it has been a constant uphill nightmare of a battle trying to make that actually function correctly. Yeah, like that theoretically qualifier. Yeah, it it transfers information. It's just incorrect information. Like our inventory at our second store, at that store on the point of sale, is always wrong because it will send incorrect information to the other store and then receive more incorrect information back from that store and tell us we have three of something that we definitely have zero of or tell us we have, you know, one of something or we have negative five of something that we I'm looking at four of on the shelf. Thankfully, our, our main locations 
inventory is accurate for both stores. So, and, and our, you know, our, our second store is small enough that it's easy to find anything. You don't need to rely on the, the computer's inventory being accurate, but that is another six hour phone call with Intuit that I am not looking forward to that I have to squeeze into my day somewhere soon. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we, we use Facebook, we use, um, Twitter. We, I, we, we have, uh, we have a new website under development that is going to be such a huge boon when it is finally done that, um, that will allow us to start selling admission to our events online, which I think is mm. going, to be, going to be huge for us. Um, and, uh, I don't know. We, I mean, we're, we're not especially technolo- technologically savvy. <laughs> we, we use the, the basic tools that most, most other stores do. Um, we, oh, we have a, a television in, in our big store that we design ads for a lot of our programs and products. And uh, when it's not being used for other things, we, we just scroll ads on, on that TV all day long so that people have something right in front of their face to, to let them know about events that are coming up. Um, cool. How do you how do you do that? Is it plugged okay. into a computer or something? Yeah, it's, there's just a USB. It's just a it's just a, a, a slideshow on a USB. Yeah, it's a, okay. it's a smart TV that we just plug a little thumb drive in, and it it lets us scroll through any pictures on that thumb drive as a slideshow. And then when there's things nice like uh, yeah, when there's like uh, a pro tour happening or uh, war machine like uh, a war machine. Uh, big war machine tournament or something like that we will go to twitch and we'll stream that stuff in the store so people that are you know don't have to miss out on that they don't have to decide between coming to like a sunday draft or watching the pro tour they can they can do both yeah and so we we've we've played episodes of tabletop during board game night and things like that we we you know we, we use the tv for other things but it's nice to have it for um for just letting people know about events okay you mentioned your website before yes. before that uh are you paying another company to develop it for you? Uh, it's actually a customer of ours. We and this has been a a nightmarish experience in and of itself. Up until we found this customer, we we've had at least three other people who we have negotiated with about our website, had them start working on it, and then had them just disappear off the face of the planet. Um, we uh, I, I I actually my my technological development ended in about 2001 and i was a really really great web designer in 2001 but i've just completely failed to uh keep up, keep up with the times and so initially i had i had been working on our website and i i just i just hit a, a brick wall where my my expertise ended and we needed someone to take over and uh until we found our our recent guy zach um we were struggling, but he is uh, very close to finishing this new site, and we've been keeping in touch with him and, and staying on top of it. And uh, it's pretty exciting. It's going to be a big step up. We're going to have um, uh, a newsletter and uh, a blog, and you know all, all of the things that modern sites have that we have just failed to keep up with the times until up until this this point. Exciting. That's uh, yep. that's interesting. Why was it so difficult to find somebody who could you well, could trust? It wasn't so hard to find somebody that could do it. The problem was finding somebody who could do it that wouldn't flake out fifty to seventy-five percent of the way through. Yeah, we. I don't. We just, we just got. I, I think. I mean, it's honestly just bad luck. Like the first person we used just got us most of the way through, and then when we needed a couple tweaks, uh, they just 
were unresponsive. And then we found somebody else and that person got most of the way through and then decided to vanish off the face of the earth. And then, you know, now we've, now we've got Zach and he actually responds to us and is finishing the site. (laughs) I think we, we fell into the trap of, um, letting people work on it as something that they wanted to do because they wanted us to have a website rather than hiring someone and paying an industry rate. We had customers who approached us and said, your website sucks. Uh, I'm great at websites. Why don't, why don't you give me a hundred dollars in store credit and I'll fix your website for you. And it, it turned out that when presented with the choice of whether to do real work that gave them real money or work on this thing that they offered to do for criminally undervalued mm-hmm. <laughs> price points. They, they often chose to ignore the criminally undervalued work and work on the stuff that paid them real money. So, and, and, and each time we found a new person, we tried to learn from our mistakes and say, Hey, the last guy asked us if, uh, you know, asked us to do the, if he could do the site and said he wanted a hundred dollars in store credit. We thought that was too low, but he insisted. We insist on paying you an hourly w- wage. Yeah. And second guy flaked, and the third guy, we said, all right, not only do we insist on paying you an hourly wage, but we're going to let you start from scratch rather than try to finish this project that other people have already started. But obviously two or three people have failed to be able to finish despite it being almost done. Yeah. So lots of pitfalls, but hopefully we learned our lessons from them. <laughs> That's life. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's do something a little different, I guess. Okay. If you had to pick one thing about your business, what is it that makes it successful? And it's okay if you say you. <laughs> um, I th- I think it's a combination of us and our employees' love of gaming. Like I I really think it is just the how much we we all care about being nerds. Yeah, I think being being gamers and not being businessmen has has been has been great for people trusting us and for the success of our business as a result. Cool, it's a good answer. And then, also, I wanted to ask you, what does success look like to you? Like, what do you want when you started the business? What did you want it to be, and what did you want it to feel like for you? We. I mean, I'm not sure about, I think me and Ben are on the same page here. Both of us want to be able to make enough money to, to live. We don't, neither of us actually, I think, care about being rich. We, we want, like, I personally hate the idea of money and it. Like, I just don't like money at all. I wish we could not have it, but we need it. And so I'd like to have just enough to live comfortably and provide a space where people can enjoy themselves and, and, you know, do what they love. Yeah, I mean, success for me with this store, and especially with respect to this store, is when I walk in on a Thursday night and I have 16 people playing 40K in the in the back corner of the store, and I've got 30 people playing Magic over in the other part of the store, and I've got uh, guys coming up and up up and downstairs on uh, on snack runs between between encounters at at their D and D table upstairs. And, uh, and there's, you know, a couple of guys playing board games over in the corner and there's a couple guys playing hero clicks and, and, and everyone's just having fun. Like that's, that's success for me is we've got a hundred enthusiastic people doing what they love and we helped make that a reality. 
that's that's just something I wanted to know. Most entrepreneurs, when they start their business, they don't really know what they want for themselves. Most people don't know what they really want for themselves to begin with. So right. it's good to know where you want to, like what makes you happy. Yeah. And then drive towards that vision. Definitely. Okay. So we're coming up at about an hour at this point. Let's, uh, let's talk about what's going to happen in the future for Red Caps Corner. What are you uh, working on other than expansion into a newer, bigger location? Um, we're going to, I mean, we're going to delve more into, uh, trying to sell online a little bit. Once our website is up and up and running, we're going to slowly expand into doing more and more online sales. And I don't see us at least in the foreseeable future turning into a major online retailer. That's not something either of us wants to be. And it's, it's not something I think is likely for us to be, but I, I think being able to be that much more convenient for our existing local customer base where they can look at our inventory online and and reserve things just by buying that thing right online, whether that means that we ship it to them or they come pick it up. I think uh, delving a little bit more into online sales is, is uh, a big goal of ours going forward. Yeah. And for me, I just want to make our events better. Like I always want our events to be more well attended, make sure that everybody's having as much fun as possible. Like that, That's really what I want is that you know our events are as good as they can possibly be. And yeah, always exceed our customers' expectations. Yeah, conti- we're continually revamping our our calendar and our event uh, event core. So yeah, that's that's a big thing. Keep keeping keeping innovating. I mean, we've done lots of little weird things in in the past. We we ran um, a game called Brick Wars for a while that was um, a miniatures game played with and uh, built entirely out of Lego. You would build a Lego. Battlefield, you would have your Lego army, and all, all the rules were just available for free online. We we supported the game a little bit by dabbling in in Lego sales, and when people stopped showing up for it, we stopped doing it. But but like we're we're always willing to to innovate and try uh, new types of events like that. Keep improving. Yep, it's a good goal. And if uh, any of the listeners wanted to find you online on social media in real life, where can they do that? Uh, it's redcapscorner.com uh, uh, or they can email us at redcapscorner at gmail.com um, we are redcapscorner on Facebook um, we are redcapscorner on Twitter <laughs> very consistent <laughs> these, these, are, these are all uh, I guess we should specify without any underscore or hyphen or apostrophe or space it's yeah. just, just yeah. all, all redcapscorner one, one word um, but yeah we're pretty consistent about our online presence <laughs> And if they want to come visit you in person, uh, we our main location is at thirty six seventeen Lancaster Avenue in Philadelphia, in West Philadelphia, and our newer store is at forty eight twelve Baltimore Avenue, also in Philadelphia. The uh, the newer store can be accessed via the the Baltimore Avenue trolley line, the thirty four, the thirty four, and and uh, the older store can be accessed via probably the best way is the just a subway, the the blue line, the L. Yeah, the Market Frankfurt line uh, gets off two blocks away at 34th Street, and the trolley, the number 10 trolley, stops directly in front of the store. Great. Okay, well, uh, thank you for coming on the show and talking to me about your business. Yeah, I course. really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it myself, too. Uh, do you have any parting advice for somebody who wanted to get into the business? Whenever you figure out how much money it's going to cost to open a store, 
make sure you have like an extra $15,000 beyond that at least. Yeah, I would say, I would say whatever your estimates say, double it. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you guys have a great day. Yeah, you and, too. Uh, Thanks so much. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you want to run better Magic events with higher turnouts and players battling one another to stay on top of the standings week after week? Well, now you can. MTGleaderboards.com is a system for creating and managing everything you need to run killer Magic tournaments. Create seasons, track player performance, and get your players pumped to play in your store every day of the week. Check out MTGleaderboards.com, sign up today, and you'll get the early adopter special rate. Supercharge your Magic events with MTGleaderboards.com. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Ben Rowe and Adam Friedman. I really appreciate the fact that they came on the show to talk with us about their uh, their sweet, sweet business. And if you get a chance, you should definitely go check out Red Caps Corner. And now, if you're looking for more info on game store entrepreneurship, you want some new strategies, maybe some tips or tactics, you know, some systems, that kind of thing, you should head over to maniversesaga.com because that's where it's all going down. It's also the home of the Maniverse podcast. And while I'm at it, I also wanted to say thank you to the listener for tuning in each week. Without you, this podcast just doesn't matter. So you're the ones I'm doing this for, and I really appreciate it. So with that, I'm going to close out the way I always do. Thank you for listening. <laughs>